All right, everybody, welcome back to the Chat for God podcast. We are recording on this lovely Sunday. Marin, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. I just smiled imagining you lifting your hands <laughs> the way that you tended to do in the visual. We're audio only now. I can't see you lift your hands to the to the fake congregation. Yes. So. Well, at the moment, we're recording audio only. And by way of a little bit of housekeeping for people out there listening, we are still experimenting a little bit with the format and the and, and the production methodologies we are going to commit to with this podcast. So as you know, we've recorded some episodes live on YouTube, and that's been fun in many ways. We have some nice commenters there who like those live streams. Now we're trying some audio only recordings where we can not worry so much about how we look and, you know, being maximally engaging every passing second, which is part of the game when you're live streaming on YouTube. And we're going to try audio only because it affords you some advantages. Like we can, you know, take long pauses if we want and just cut that down in, in editing. And we can really focus on our thoughts and feelings and words rather than worrying about how we appear. So bear with us, loyal listeners. If you're a little confused on our our methods and our, our systems, we're going to keep producing and we're going to keep uploading to the podcast for sure. At a bare minimum, it'll be you'll be seeing new uploads. But uh, how we do it and when we do it, we're still experimenting with a little bit. Plus, we are also doing live Clubhouse chats. And this is something that we have enjoyed. Clubhouse, if you don't know, is a new social network. It's, it's audio only and it's drop-in chat rooms, basically. So you come and go as you please. And there's just a bunch of them running at any time. And it is really fun because it's scaling very fast and the the way the algorithm works, it just is easy to have a large number of people in the room at once. And we've been having Chat for God themed clubhouse chats where we invite other people to jump on stage with us and talk with us. And it's been quite fun and quite rewarding. So if you wanted to get in on that, we have some extra invites. All you have to do is email me or DM me and we can probably hook you up with one unless you know a thousand of you were to hit me up at once. But we should be able to take care of you. So we're going to keep doing that and we're going to keep uploading the podcast, but we're still experimenting a little bit with how we're doing all these things. So thanks for listening and thanks for bearing with us as we really figure out our routine. How are you thinking about everything, Marin, so far, uh, you know, all these different things we're doing, any interesting hot takes on Clubhouse or uh, how, how things have been un unfolding so far for the podcast? No, I mean, I really enjoy that we're experimenting. I feel that it's an encouraging decision. I think at baseline, it feels like a very worthy space and conversation. And I think we've both felt that. So figuring out what formats best accomplish our goals and holding space that is able to be kind of intellectual and a little bit silly at times, <laughs> kind of playful and expansive, and which really solicits other people to join in a meaningful way. I think Clubhouse prospectively lets us get closer to people themselves and their ideas and grow and build build on that space. So we're just poking around and seeing what feels right from a from a format perspective. And as always, we want to know what you guys think. So yeah, definitely. So leave a, leave a review on the podcast and tell us what you think. Thanks for listening, though, as always, as we really get the show off the ground. So Marin, this week we agreed to talk about Nietzsche, mm -hmm. the infamous mm -hmm. critic and hater of Christianity. But I believe it's more complicated than that. I mean, we Starting should start by just saying he's a pastor's kid, right? So like everything he thinks is disqualified, <laughs> right? Mm, say more. Why is Based that? Based on his own trauma. I don't know. Pastors' children have specific experiences that that probably make a lot of their youth really tinged by the probably dogmatic morality that that their parent inflicts on them. And of course, in this case, it was his father. It's even worse if if it's the same sex parent. You know, you're really in for it then. Mm. Okay, so Marin is coming out strong with the psychoanalytic theory of <laughs> yeah. Nietzsche's anti-Christianity. It's really a kind of rebellion against his own parents. I mean, he says himself that philosophy is essentially biographical. Mm, indeed. So I think he would let us put it to him if he were here with us right now. I like that as a starting point. I do think that there might be something there that 
what Nietzsche is really trying to do with his seething anti-Christianity is to create some distance between himself and his familial inheritance. But I believe that if you look closely at his commentary on Christianity, it's much more complicated than 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 people think. I actually don't think that he's as fully anti-Christian as people realize. I would even submit to you, loyal listeners, that there is a lot of space for a Christian Nietzscheanism. Because the way that I see it, if you look closely, his critiques of Christianity have mostly to do with developments that take place after the initial founding revolutionary moment of of the teachings of Jesus Christ himself. And so when you pay close attention to that, I think you can make the case that there is a there is a good core of Christianity that Nietzsche seems to actually quite admire. And the goal then for a, a, a Christian Nietzscheanism would be to to identify and extract and remove the rotten, decadent, post-Jesus layers of resentment and all of that which Nietzsche so scathingly attacks to leave that good essential core. That's what I'm interested in. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. No, it's it's interesting, I think, reflecting on a lot of what Nietzsche notoriously hates about Christianity is he thinks it makes people weak. He saw it as a kind of slavery, which again, it's just so easy to harken back to being a child of a pastor. But mm. I, I tend to agree. I think a lot of a lot of his ethos is really rooted in and consistent with a Christianity taken through a different frame, perhaps a more Protestant frame, even Justin, if we wanted to. Okay, say more. <laughs> if we wanted to go there. I think. I mean, he. You, you you should you should open his dislike of Paul and I think some of the genealogy of of morals that you especially spent time with this week. But I mean, Paul is the beginning of the Catholic incarnation of of Christianity now. Right. Sure. Sure. So we and can... Jesus himself had a huge will to power at, at some at some real level. I mean, it felt felt very called to it. As sure. Well. So let's definitely talk about the Protestant versus Catholic perspective on this because I do think there's something interesting there. I will probably make the argument to you that the the Protestant phenomenon is only a later stage level of the decadence and degeneracy that Nietzsche is critical of. So it would be like Paul is the beginning of the problem. Protestantism is just an advanced stage of the problem. But I see what you're saying also. So that that could be an interesting discussion. So maybe for the listeners, uh, let me briefly try to break down what I was claiming a minute ago. So if you look at Nietzsche's genealogy of morals, where he perhaps most famously diagnoses Christianity, this is where he really puts Christianity in a historical perspective and basically blames Christianity for a, a, a revolution in morals. He, this is where Nietzsche, in a most historical way, in his most scholarly version of the argument, suggests that Christianity really introduces to Western culture a a slave morality that shames the strong and valorizes the weak. And this is, in Nietzsche's eyes, uh, an extraordinary calamity, where we used to have these aristocratic ideals where, you know, before Christianity, the, the strong were intrinsically seen as as better, not just in terms of power, but in terms of of morals, that the healthy, the powerful, the joyous, those things were just naturally associated with the good. And Christianity turns this on its head, and most listeners will be familiar with what we're talking about there, right? Uh, Christianity does preach a a philosophy of you know the meek shall inherit the meek shall inherit the earth, and you know the the rich have no chance of getting into heaven, and and all of these well-known Christian memes, right? And so that's the super basic cartoonish understanding of Nietzsche's critique of Christianity that comes out in a book like The Genealogy of Morals. And Justin, what? Oh, go for it. Please, go on. Oh, I was just going to say, what societies does he use as reference, as as kind of counterpoints? What what non-Christian societies does he valorize? 
in these um, specific it, examples? It, it was pre-Christian Greco-Roman culture would be the answer to that. So the Greeks and 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 the the Romans before Christianity. So he often talks very favorably about about Rome, about you know the the kind of warrior attitude, the the kind of noble aristocratic strong warrior attitude that you would have seen in the kind of noble elites before Rome becomes Christianized. That, that's the short answer. So, <clears throat> all right. When you actually start looking at Nietzsche's work, though, when you try to dig deeper beyond this kind of cartoonish image, and Nietzsche is, by the way, just one of the most caricatured philosophers out there. I mean, in the history of philosophy, there's probably, he might very well be the number one figure who appears in movies and TV shows and on on t-shirts and uh, intended to represent a certain basic meme. And that is usually the kind of angsty, poetic, rebellious 18-year-old who is, you know, rebelling against their parents and uh, hates the the slave morality of, of, of religion and institutions. That's kind of the caricature, right? And so there's clearly some basis for that. You can find it in his books. But once you start reading his books, it becomes very, very clear that. But as soon as you open a book such as The Genealogy of Morals and you actually start drilling down, you find it's rather bewildering. It's very complicated. In many ways, Nietzsche is awestruck at the, the, the revolutionary power of this extraordinary Jesus figure. And even in little ways, you find interesting paradoxes. So for instance, the very first mention of Christianity in the genealogy of morals is actually making fun of anti-Christianity. He's making fun of the English psychologists who, when he refers to it, when he refers to the quote unquote English psychologists, he's probably referring to David Hume in particular at the beginning of genealogy of morals. You know, uh, David Hume is famous for his wonderings about is it logical to believe that the sun will rise tomorrow when really we don't have strong evidence for that? Or, you know, there's not a kind of deductive reason to know that or be sure of that. Our only real evidence is that the sun seems to rise every day. So therefore, we trust that it's going to rise the next day. These are the types of things that this is the kind of English analysis that that Nietzsche has in mind that he's kind of poking fun at. And he criticizes the English psychologists for their vulgar anti-Christianity. So already at the very beginning of the genealogy, the first time Christianity comes up, it's this weird, implicitly pro-Christian attitude almost in that he's making fun of anti-Christians. And then you keep reading and it's interesting because the next comment he makes about Christianity is again, paradoxically pro-Christianity. He says, has the church nowadays any necessary purpose? And I'm quote, has it in fact a right to live? Or could man get on without it? It seems that it fetters and retards this tendency, referring to his previous comment on essentially the decadent democratic leveling process that he's famous for criticizing. He says it fetters and retards this tendency instead of accelerating it. Well, even that might be its utility. So already at the very beginning, he's actually saying maybe the Christian church nowadays in the modern world is actually a bulwark against the increasing decadence and degeneracy that he is critical of with modernity and democracy. So these are just some interesting threads, but already at the very beginning, it's clear that if you're actually reading what he writes, it's very complicated. A kind of naive anti-Christianity is very quickly out of the question when you actually try to integrate his his comments in a in a holistic way. Do you think that that's in what ways is that specifically Christian and in what ways is that more aesthetic or religious of him in general? What do you mean? I mean, I know Nietzsche really, maybe more than many other philosophers, I think it's very funny that he opened insulting the English. That's just like so German of him to do. <laughs> but he, Nietzsche himself was pretty romantic, right? His first book, The Birth of Tragedy, which is about art really tries to defend the Dionysian Dionysian parts of 
you know, what it means to be kind of crazy and aesthetic and experiential and really dislikes uh, the perfect values-based Apollonian harmony of Greek society. And I'm I'm curious when when you read the genealogy of morals, if you derive from Nietzsche a kind of pro-Christian stance or just like an anti anti-religious stance, if that makes sense. He doesn't like people who don't understand the Dionysian in our character and in our nature, regardless of of whether that shows up as as Christian or or something else. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I think you're onto something there. I think that he admires strong souls, free spirits who, through the very force of their own energy and creative power, are able to execute on original visions and produce waves in the world. And I would argue that Nietzsche, that 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 Jesus is a, an exemplar of this, really. And what he loathes is midwits who will use and abuse the materials around them to essentially exercise their own petty, vulgar, psychological needs. And so I do think that the way you're, you're phrasing it there is, is, is helpful because I do think that he has to respect the, the, the accomplishment of, of Jesus himself, that what, what Jesus himself as an individual, as a historical personage and as a, as a, as a symbolic entity and aesthetic entity it, he, he he does seem to favor that it's really just the history of midwits after jesus starting with paul but down all the way to you know contemporary you know evangelical preachers that have lost the the real capacity and that that real spirit that someone like jesus embodied i mean what do you think well, I'm I'm curious how much of that seems to be about a defense of creative power and revelation versus the church, i.e. this institution object in which you were meant to do penance in specific ways, et cetera, et cetera. It, it definitely has parallels to me for his first writing, right? The Birth of Tragedy, in which he really understands that there's value in the traditional beauty of traditional Greek statues and perfect forms and all these platonic ideals, if you will. But he thinks that the the thing that matters the most to be human and to be artistic in a gratifying sense is to break against those efforts to live in this perfect form and to rage a bit harder in that feels somewhat consistent perhaps with his critique of the church as a structure but not necessarily with Christ as a as a human or god godlike creature. Yeah. Well, I mean he's definitely an atheist through and through, I would say. And maybe that kind of complicates this discussion because I mean I'm certainly not trying to say that he had any sympathy for or claims to revelation. I think it is pretty clear that he that he doesn't, and he sees himself as as completely uh, beyond and, and above any any belief in God. But he does he does speak favorably, for instance, about the Greek gods. He thought that the Greek the Greek religion, polytheism, essentially, everyone listening has heard of you know many of the the well known Greek gods like Zeus and all of the characters you encounter when you read you know the Odyssey or what have you. And he had a lot of respect for that because he thought that it was aesthetically kind of superior. He thought that it represented healthier ideals and a healthier culture. Yeah. What do you, what, what is your defense then for his uh, liking of Christ himself? Does he, does he explicitly seem to respect Christ as a character? Yeah, I would say, I would say it's, it's, it's pretty clear. It's not even a it's it's not an extremely advanced or esoteric reading here. I think that he says he'll say things like Christianity is rotten to the core or from the very beginning Christianity was was rotten. I'm paraphrasing here, but he will say things like that. But then and that might make you think, oh, so clearly he's putting Jesus inside of the bucket that he hates. But then he'll also say things like that that Paul 
St. Paul was really the beginning of what he means by Christianity. So, you know, if you, if you look at what he really believes, which is the need for strong individuals who are capable of what he calls the transvaluation of values, he then is clear that Christianity was a transvaluation of values. And therefore, it it is a pretty clear case to be made that Jesus was a example of an extremely powerful soul that was able to accomplish an unparalleled, arguably the most successful and long-lasting and influential transvaluation of values that ever occurred in Western history was accomplished by essentially Jesus. And Nietzsche is all about calling for this type of strong soul who is capable of achieving another transvaluation of values. It's just that Nietzsche thinks that the next Superman or Uberman should be able to do it in this kind of post-Christian way to let go of what is rotten in Christianity. Um, so he certainly, you know, is not calling for, you know, the the second coming of Christ per se. Of course not. But he he does seem to basically be saying, of all the people in human history who have accomplished the transvaluation of values, Jesus is probably the most powerful and successful. So, and and you see this, and you see this in in certain ways explicitly because he says he says things like. Can you even believe that this happened? You know, you look at the you look at the Christian revolution, you look at what 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 happened from Jesus's life, and you know, he says literally things like, "One can hardly believe that it's even possible." So he's literally awestruck. I feel I I don't know why I have this compulsion to just rip down your argument, but that's kind of how I feel a little bit. Yeah, I'm really please. curious. Well, I'm I'm curious what you think is the most pro. Christianity or, or how how you think that we can reconcile Nietzsche and Christianity. I have I have some bad ideas about it. And I'm curious for you, when you were reading Genealogy Genealogy of Morals, were were you compelled to say, oh, in fact, Nietzsche doesn't understand that he is in fact pro-Christian in a lot of meaningful regards? Or or do you think that Nietzsche understands this, but he just gets recast? in popular culture as if he is more dogmatically anti-Christ than he in fact was in his in his own life or philosophy. Well, you just refer to arguments that you might have. So I feel like you should just lead with them. No? Well, I'm I'm nervous because I've not uh I don't want to I don't want to presume I don't want to presume anything. I think I think you the thing totally I'm trying to the everything. thing I'm trying to reconcile here is that my my understanding of Nietzsche and his whole notion of building Ubermensches and will to power is that you need to you need to pay attention to the parts of you that are bad so that you can see your envy, see your greed, see your negative quality, and let those things guide you because they're telling you important things about who you in fact are and where you should go. Does that mm-hmm. seem like a fair baseline for just like basic Nietzsche 101? Sure. Okay. And the thing I'm trying to reconcile is if the thing that Nietzsche is calling us to is to be able to inquire about and give credence to the negative parts of ourselves, I guess his basic argument against Christianity would be that we are we are told not to pay attention to those things. We are told to, as immediately as we experience them, ask for forgiveness in them and not to presume that there's anything meaningful to come from that self-inquiry or reflection, that it, that we're meant to see it as kind of strictly a negative part of our character, which is which is to be given straight to God. Does that sound true as well? I think I see what you're trying to say. I think that I, I think that Nietzsche's real ideal vision, though, is one in which I mean I think Nietzsche wants to not even acknowledge that there are negative parts of ourselves in some way. He wants this kind of pure affirmation, really. He wants people to feel completely free and light. And there, there is nothing, there is nothing negative in some, in some sense, you know, he talks about the yes and uh, the, the ability to say yes and say yes and say yes. And to, you know, he's obviously very critical of the feelings of guilt that accumulate under a religious attitude. And that's, that is kind of one of the things he's, he seems most angry with Christianity about is, is the teaching that is the teaching of original sin. He mentions this frequently mm-hmm. as something that he finds rather gross and unfortunate. And he, he believes that Christianity 
makes people overly obsessed with with the negative uh, traits of themselves uh, of themselves in a way that is not necessary. So I guess the Christian argument against this would be that by giving us a way to be absolved of our bad qualities, we can overcome them or endeavor to yes. become yeah. greater essentially. Yeah. But absolutely this is it. That that that's like you're, you're, that's the that's the kind of Nietzschean Christianity I'm 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 interested in because what you just said is is basically pointing the way towards a, a possible Christian Nietzscheanism in the sense that so in the genealogy of morals Nietzsche says at one point he talks about how the the feeling of sin or of of or guilt that emerges naturally psychologically in us is in part a function of the fact that you know we appear in existence and we don't know where we came from and we experience this as a kind of guilt and because we feel like we owe it to someone we feel like we owe it to someone or something that we exist when it doesn't seem to make sense why we even exist and so we we psychologically invent this concept of the creator god as a way of absolving our guilt in a way our guilt for existing and mm-hmm. but then he says and and this is just another example of how nietzsche is a kind of secret christian in a way because he then gives christianity a ton of credit for actually being a genius solution to this to this feeling of of guilt this existential feeling of guilt that we have he even calls christianity a stroke of genius he uses this phrase at least in the translation i was looking at this week he says i have a quote here he says till suddenly we stand before that paradoxical and awful expedient through which a tortured humanity has found a temporary alleviation that stroke of genius called christianity god personally immolating himself for the debt of man god paying himself personally out of a pound of his own flesh god as the one being who can deliver man from what man had become unable to deliver himself the creditor playing scapegoat for his debtor from love can you believe it from love of his debtor so here basically nietzsche is saying this is just an extraordinary innovation this is a literally a stroke of genius that it's hard to even believe this philosophical ingenuity arose let alone was able to gain the kind of world historical traction that it gained men who naturally have this kind of existential guilt or feeling of debt for having come into existence christianity emerges with this novel conception of a god that immolates himself to absolve the debt of man god paying himself personally out of a pound of his own flesh to solve this problem of man feeling existentially burdened or existentially guilty for existing to me i'm reading this i'm like yes 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 this is this is great this is why christianity is so smart and cool and and correct it's like it it is christianity has these like genius uh conceptions that solve real existential problems and so it's like the very same thing he's criticizing but also awestruck about i'm like yeah this is why the this is why it's true this is why it's good and true <laughs> yeah yeah it's interesting i don't know what nietzsche's alternative proposal is I think that's what I'm really trying to dig into. I think, mm-hmm. and, and in particular, you're pointing out this existential feeling of unworthiness that humans have, which I'm I'm inclined to believe that we are also existentially unworthy. I don't think it really matters what your religious background is. I think we we are constantly afraid of rejection. I think our experience in human spaces with other human beings is one of persistent rejection, which and one of shame <laughs> and all of these things that we kind of can't escape just as social animals and creatures we're going we're going to experience shame we're going to experience guilt and so the question for me becomes how do we how do we reconcile ourselves to that how do we persevere in spite of in spite of that part of the human condition and i don't know it sounds to me like nietzsche's solution is to just like not give a fuck <laughs> well I what, think but, but, that, that. but that's not sophisticated. So, so surely it must be more, more complicated. And I think that that's where I'm pausing. It's like I've, I've read, I've read not everything that Nietzsche's ever written. Certainly, I've not read the Genealogy of Morals, and I'm just pausing with, with 
his existential answer to the question of what do we do with our what do we do with our own natures and it's interesting also just looking at Nietzsche's own life right we're talking about a man who is profoundly rejected from almost the beginning his his first book was kind of publicly made fun of this is a man who's tremendously romantic and artistic in in a deep sense who spent much of his life by himself as a reject like in true solitude and who ultimately went mad right mm-hmm. so if if nietzsche himself did not ever reconcile himself to a lived community and practice in which he felt ex- a sense of acceptance and an ability to absolve his own his own psychology his own existential guilt i'm curious how much credence we should give to his philosophy and what what his what what he kind of called for of totally. us i think that's a absolutely fair point i i do think it's important to take biographies seriously and if someone's life did not pan out in the way you want your life to pan out then you might want to you know take their ideas with 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 some grain of salt i think that's absolutely fair and i i, I agree with that Nietzsche probably would have been better off if he submitted to the church, but then again, he wouldn't. He wouldn't have. He wouldn't have given us the genius that he that he gave. Although maybe you could imagine a situation where someone is able to say, "Oh, look, Nietzsche's right on a lot of this stuff, and his radical philosophies are are good and true." And 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 maybe you wanted you want to retain that type of radical philosophical creativity and and badass nature. But also, you kind of have to bite the bullet and realize that Christianity is true, and you have to submit to God. Also, <laughs> that's kind of what I'm trying to do. I think that's like my life mission, maybe. But um, you made a comment about not being sure what Nietzsche's alternative was, mm-hmm. and I do think that I do think there's a pretty clear case to be made. I think a lot of scholars would probably agree. My understanding of of kind of the secondary literature on Nietzsche is that. It's it's for Nietzsche. It is art, really. That is the the replacement category. So he does seem to believe that we can, you know, with the with the death of God, the real next saving grace is art. Understood broadly, understood understood mm-hmm. very generally as strong creative spirits that are able to produce novel frameworks, which are emotionally, psychologically, aesthetically compelling and 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 inspiring and that this is possibly a sufficient bedrock for the the civilization of the future, the the civilization after the death of God. I just think it turns out that that's not really plausible. I think what we're seeing today, you know, more than well more than 100 years after the death of Nietzsche I think if Nietzsche were around, he would be like, yeah, maybe art actually requires deeper foundations for it to even be powerful. Because I think what you see today is the artistic drive itself is just not that strong. It's not it's not strong enough to be the foundation. It itself relies on deeper foundations yeah. that are that are essentially metaphysical and ultimately religious. Yeah. Well, I think I think there's kind of a conflation here with what it means for something to be artistic versus what it means for something to be religious. Mm. Both of them are are about a conduit to an experience of the divine at some level. And I think for Nietzsche that's still true. I think w- w- the in The Birth of Tragedy, right, which is yes, his first book, but also very much very much an entirely about art and he talks about trying to actively reconcile these two ways of being, right? He talks about the Apollonian and the Dionysian, which I keep referring to and I'm probably mispronouncing. But no, that's right, I believe. But but the important thing is that the 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 former is rational, right? There's a values-based force which he acknowledges is is meaningful and important and credible at some level, and he's trying to call us also to a more creative and experiential force, which is the Dionysian, right? This is the kind of god of wine and debauchery. He refers to these very cult-like communal practices in which people would go and eat 
animal hearts and things together, right? As as these ritualistic practices, as being maybe on the on the extreme end of this. And he refers explicitly to a lot of artists that he think did a great job reconciling these two ways of being. And I think when you refer to contemporary art, for example, the thing which we've spoken about before that it seems to lack, that that art which has some real religious foundation doesn't, is mm-hmm. is that the former the the kind of rational or values based quality that emerges these beautiful artistic experiences and that's the thing that i feel like nietzsche in all of his work and writing lacks right i i i will say i actually really value a lot of his notions of the will to power i think that that encouragement towards the darker sides of our natures and that acceptance and even enthusiasm for our envies, et cetera. I think there's something to that that that's meaningful and important because there is true information in the things which you envy or in your more negative experiences. And if if we do develop compulsions to ignore those so much that we try to give them way to God instantaneously, we are missing a lot of who we in fact are and what makes us individuals and what what makes us creative beings and really how we're going to be able to thrive and do God's work in this material world while we're here. So in that sense, I, I understand. He, I, I'm imagining a, a character who is probably forced to quickly ask for forgiveness for any inclination that he had that fell out of line, right? And who just loathed that. And, and I think that critique of Christianity and and of culture in general is very fair, right? If we're not allowed to be out of line, we're not going to create anything new or interesting <laughs> at all. Mm-hmm. And he never he never really reconciled himself to a value that was greater than the will to power, right? If you if you kind of get rid of all values at baseline and you just talk about art, art art is a very scary thing to defend as the root of value because it's purely it, it's purely subjectively experiential and to and I think the thing that religion does that's that's interesting is it it creates process and it, it kind of reflects on what is artistic like I th- I think at the at the far limit you could talk about theology as a sort of shared practice which is essentially artistic but mm-hmm. but which is reproducible for many for many people, right? And the narratives and the fixtures and the aesthetic around around you know what what we conceive of religion as being is is actually a kind of social collectivist artistic practice that explicitly l- seeks to be metaphysical, right? It just kind of owns that function, whereas a yeah. lot of our, our in the contemporary sense, et cetera. pretends it's not trying to be metaphysical and that's actually kind of its failure it like pretends to be superficial political etc and in that sense i do think becomes overly intellectual under artistic and really unsatisfying for most people yeah i think that's absolutely right i mean would you say in short is it a fair summary of what you just said that religion is essentially just the most grand art possible and trying to do art with a kind of atheistic background presupposition just leads the art to be a kind of lame and constrained kind of art whereas true religion is actually art on the grandest scale like at 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 the cosmic level yeah and i don't know how to reconcile those two things and i do care very much about trying to i've mentioned a little bit of my own background before but i was raised in a very conservative christian context and household and was not encouraged to explore a lot which i in my adulthood have chosen to pursue and in particular i i really really love art and value both artistic practice as well as just the the kinds of like emotional spiritual experiences that you can have with with art and and I I include modern art in that very much in fact most of the art that I love is abstract expressionism and you know somewhat more classically modern not not really contemporary um though th- though there are some really beautiful and amazing uh installations that are contemporary and just sculptural forms that are really provocative and interesting to me but all, all that to say you're still kind of left without a sense of what it should do in tran- in translation into your own life, 
and how you should mm-hmm. live in a daily in a daily sense and what you should value or put on a pedestal other than the artistic experience itself, which is kind of meandering. I don't know. No, I hear you though. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that makes sense on to me. I think so we should maybe if you want to talk about something you brought up earlier, which is the Protestant Catholic split. I don't know if you have, if you have any, any thoughts on that because it is, it is kind of interesting from, from Nietzschean perspective you know, is, is the Protestant Reformation a confrontation with the degeneracy of the Christian church that we would associate with, you know, the Apostle Paul and, and, and its subsequent developments from, from Paul and downward? Or is the Protestant Reformation a kind of acceleration and unleashing of, of precisely what was, what was already rotten with with the church at that time. I think that's an interesting debate if you if you want to if you want to take a stab at it. I think I don't yet know really what the bounds of Protestantism are <laughs> per se. I do think that by definition in Catholicism you have a lot less innovation. There are far fewer people who are in the word with the text, right? If the if the text, the philosophy itself, Christ's work and life itself are the bedrock, the the kind of values bedrock of of what the religious experience becomes. You either have a lot of people who are volitionally playing with that, or you have a hierarchy of interpretation, which is being passed through the system. And I think that a preference for Protestantism over Catholicism, and Justin, you may totally disagree with me, I think of I think a preference for Protestantism is sort of a preference for being able to spark many, many denominations and many, many ways of interpreting the word and living it, living it out. And I, I would push Protestantism to even to even greater degrees personally. I think there's a there's a risk of being actively sacrilegious, which I think I toe that line <laughs> a little bit in my in my own faith. But we can either we, we talked we've we've spoken before about forking we can either kind of take this multi-thousand year old beautiful values laden text and set of narratives which have kind of considered most aspects of what it means to be human in society and many many relationships with god and how those things have shown up and we can give people the the ability to do what they will with them and and create and invent or we can tell them that they're strictly not allowed, and we can we compensate for that with practice, which is really tr- you know laden in tradition and which is lovely. You know, Catholic mass and ceremony has, I think, a lot of profundity sort of built in through through the years of its being upheld. But at the at the level of the individual, I guess I I just feel like re- reekingly protestant in my preference to be able to incorporate to trust myself to incorporate the kinds of practice which i think will bring me closer to god yeah that's a beautiful thing and i'm 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 very happy for you that you feel that way (laughs) because i feel like one of the main reasons i'm interested in christianity is because i don't trust myself i mean Mm. i trust myself on earthly matters, you know, I trust my ability to be responsible manage my money, you know, work hard, mm-hmm. be disciplined, be, uh, you know, pursue my goals and make wise decisions in earthly matters. I trust myself in those things. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to the absolutes in life, when it comes to what is the ultimate foundation of things, I don't trust myself because I, I, in my view, it looks it looks impossible to decide with my affordances, with my faculties that I have as a limited creature who can do certain things very well, like think rationally and model the world scientifically, just being honest about the strengths and weaknesses of myself as a creature with certain faculties. I do not trust myself to to know anything or to make any inferences or decisions about what is true or false when it comes to the ultimates and the absolutes. So I want to outsource that completely to a authoritarian <laughs> institution that has been around 
forever or as close to forever as possible. And I want to offload that impossible challenge to an institution that says it speaks for God. (laughs) How do you reconcile that with your anti-institutionalism? Well, I think it affords you the most anti-institutionalism possible if you are willing to submit to one institution on the matters of absolute difficulty. If you submit on the absolute plane, then you become liberated on the contingent earthly plane. Hmm. That's how I think about it anyway. I don't know if that makes sense, but that is how I think about it. And to me, Protestantism begs the question. If I would if I was if I was just a Protestant, then I would just be using my own mind, my own fallen, rationalistic, highly limited monkey brain to come up with answers about the nature of the universe and God and my ultimate meaning and purpose and 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 the foundation or the bedrock for being a good person. All of those questions would be left up to me and my monkey brain, which I do not trust. And mm-hmm. because I think a lot of what goes wrong in society is this is is humans arrogantly over applying their idiotic monkey brains to problems that they don't even really fully understand. That arrogance is, I think, one of the one of the major problems that that we face in in the increasing kind of chaos of of the modern world. And so, yeah, I think people should be ambitious and confident and and trust their instincts and trust their judgments on the earthly matters that they are that they are correct to trust themselves on. So when it comes to science and engineering and and organizing basic earthly plans or projects, then we could do better to trust our 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 judgments and our instincts a little bit more confidently. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to matters of absolute importance, there I think we're we're too arrogant and we're too confident in our own in our own you know, cognitive abilities. That's my take anyway. Mm-hmm. I mean, how do you, how do you think about that? Yeah. It's interesting because listening to you, I can't help but wonder about people's lived experiences of God. And if we give those things much credit, mm-hmm. I think the question of faith is a really interesting one. My Mom was raised in a marriage where her dad was Protestant, very Swiss Protestant, very of of the Luther <laughs> type, and her her mom was Roman Catholic. Her mom was Peruvian, and so she had two pretty extreme ends of this spectrum. And she and her three brothers all had to essentially decide which church they believed in more based on their their experiences of them and all but one ultimately became protestant and even even that one is really more protestant than catholic he ended up marrying a catholic a catholic woman when when he grew up and the thing that they all spoke about was that their catholicism was just so ritualistic whereas their protestantism they they had a much more active lived experience of god right because the premise of protestantism that's that seems the most important is the volitional choice to accept christ and and to accept the grace that there's nothing you can do by work that could warrant this gift which has been freely given to you and 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 which you were just meant to accept and something about that paradigm does seem to make people live in the world in a day-to-day way that infuses Christ, their relationships with God into into how they experience things on the ground. So I'm thinking I'm thinking just back to Nietzsche, right? This idea of the will to power, the idea of what parts of you are bad or difficult. Mm-hmm. My experience in Protestantism is that those things become brought directly into your Bible studies. They get brought directly into your faith. Your faith, because it is subjective and personal at some level, and because it is interpretive to you, your your faith becomes laced with every part of who you are and how you struggle with things, with your addictions, with your difficulties. And that is 
far more consistent, I think, with the Jungian, you know, psychotherapeutic, et cetera, et cetera, contemporary models that we have of how to be human and how to figure out who we are and do stuff in the world versus mm. Catholicism. I mean, you can you can look at what we keep talking about progress studies. We've made so much progress. Why have we made so much progress now? We didn't before. The the church that you're speaking about was in power for a really long time. And I think had a lot more dictates and a lot more fear around that power being taken away from it. And we didn't do as much, just like sheerly speaking as a society, we just didn't get as much done in the world writ large. So if if you're kind of advocating that if we if we give power away to an absolute, that we I, I guess my my concern would be twofold. One, that we we don't experience God in ways that we come to have personal trust in and personal faith in that we can carry around that mobilizes us to inquire deeper about the things about ourselves that are that we experience as quote bad. And two, I think at least to the degree we can point to history and what history bears out, I think we can we can probably advocate that Protestantism is more creatively fruitful than Catholicism, just historically speaking. Mm. Okay. I, I, I see, I see your, your perspective on it. Now, what do you say about the criticism of Protestantism that basically says it, the Protestant reformation is essentially the beginning of all of the cultural chaos we see today with increasing fragmentation of attitudes, beliefs, and, and communities. So what we're seeing, you know, right now and, for at least the past 60 years in particular, is a, an accelerating decimation of previous longstanding larger communal structures, whether that be everything from, you know, the local bowling clubs, like in, in Putnam's book, Bowling Alone, to, you know, political parties and ideologies, where you now see an extraordinary proliferation of, of ideologies and subgroups of subgroups of subgroups all the mm-hmm, way down to mm-hmm. QAnon movements. There is a case to be made that the Protestant Reformation is kind of the beginning of that because once upon a time, Western Western civilization did have an overarching absolute ethical authority. And it was Mr. Martin Luther who came along and was like, <laughs> yo, people, you don't have to listen to that big authoritarian institution, which has some corruption. You can just basically make your own church, develop your own personal relationship with God, and then fast forward a few decades, a few, well, centuries at this point, many decades, but a few centuries forward, then you have QAnon and the Hillsong Church and hipster pastors cheating on their wives and the Republican Party and the Democrat Party and Kanye and Kim getting divorced and... So much more downstream of Martin Luther. What do you make of that argument? I think that we, I think that there's something wrong in the belief that the absolute is solid. I think my my experiences of God are in communal spaces. And in this sense, I feel kind of Nietzschean, right? I, I, I'll, I'll be real. Like I love the birth of tragedy. I was all about it. And I'm, and I'm all about art, right? So, and this is, this is where you and I probably differ, Justin. I think that you can create meaningful experiences, which solve our existential dread in boots on the ground experiences in community and society, I think when we claim to have too much certainty about the absolute, we go to war with each other about who has relatively more absolute certainty. And we feel vindicated to do things which even under our own moralities would be completely unacceptable, like go to war with people or kill them, right? Mm-hmm. Most most religion doesn't actually I think, in at least in the contemporary sense, call for you to destroy people who don't see your version of God in the way that you do. And I think even when you look at Catholicism in in more recent years, you're finding a kind of more watered down version of Catholicism itself, a more inclusive and less absolute version in some real senses. I think 
I think I think we do need religious experience and artistic experience and communal experience of God on the ground to solve our existentialisms so that we don't become uprooted. And I do think that there's a speed at which we can do that. I don't think that just ripping down all old institutions and presuming we're going to decentrally crypt you know, create these like new crypto societies or something in which in which everything's fine. I'm I'm really not about that life. And <laughs> I think I think that I think that we don't necessarily need to reconcile every version of the absolute with with another. Like you you can only experience I, I think I think the experience of the absolute actually matters more as far as rootedness, like human psychological rootedness. And for me, the value of religion is really about accomplishing psychological rootedness for human beings that let them reconcile themselves to their badnesses and feel included in a way that is healthy and that calls them to be the greatest and most Christ-like versions of themselves. For me, that's that's really the model that I'm looking for. And I think entire, you know, I think, I think wholesale rejection of religion creates societies that are uprooted because people don't have any solution to their existential dread and they just start to live in total work works-based ways on the ground and don't have great forums for coming to terms with themselves and the things that they do that hurt other people unless we somehow create much 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 better art and kind of psycho you know psychotherapeutic communities or something I, I i don't think i don't think that that's really practical or 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 in in reach for us anytime soon mhm now but i mean wasn't wasn't david koresh and the branch davidians trying to basically build what you're talking about right like so this is where i always struggle with kind of the radical protestant angle which you represent you know con convincingly to some degree is if you're really going for that kind of internal communal relationship to God and the all all of the the benefits and the power of that angle on things, doesn't it just easily easily shoot off into any number of of crazy directions? And how do you draw the lines there? And how, how do you prevent you know another Waco if that's if that's like the the teaching that you want people to to take on board? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And the thing that's coming to mind for me is the role of theology. Like maybe uh -huh. maybe the size community that we need is sufficiently large such that there can be an active theology, i.e. some people are dedicated to the practice of reflecting on the the scope of the religious belief and asking themselves the question about what it is doing in the world. And it's funny, it's funny, I probably think that because I feel similarly about crypto and rebuilding institutions across the board. I think the thing that's really hard to do is to actually incentivize people to do the work to make sure that there's not misinformation in their systems or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? There are functions that the academy has played. There are functions that the media has played historically, which are largely about the editorialization process to try to help us have something that's really true and really good at some level. Mm -hmm. And as we, as we destroy those institutions and decentralize everything, the important question becomes who who is the authority anymore and how do you reconcile whether or not you're being truthful or good and i think at at sufficiently small community sizes or sufficiently decentral ones you probably don't have anybody who feels responsible for saying whether or not your group of people is in fact doing good work in the world or bad maybe maybe there's some in between i'm not i'm not quite sure but i think that that's a really exceptional question mm -hmm. yeah i because i feel what you're saying i i really do and i i want something like that too and where i come at this is look i definitely think the catholic church is that i mean there's much to not like about it and there's much to to criticize about it and i think that's well and good but the, an alternative solution to the problem you're characterizing is to revivify the the catholic church from the inside bringing to it the more internal communal personal kind of mental spiritual liberation that you're you're pointing at i think i think we are called to do that constantly as a way of revivifying the this this sclerotic large and and often corrupt institution that yeah. has descended down from you know saint peter 
And I think the way that I, I think, think about it. Yeah, I think the I think the challenging thing is I don't know when I would point to a version of Catholicism that accomplished what you're talking about. When I mm-hmm. when I hear you talk about that, I can't th- think of a historical period in which that was really happening. And I and even if you think about very early Christianity, the thing that was true about it is that you had communities who were very compelled together to live with the expectation of the pending return of Christ. And I, I I do kind of agree with Nietzsche at some level that the beginning of what was wrong with Christianity is the institutionalization of Christianity as a kind of object of power, which presumes to be able to bear the absolute. I don't think anything human can bear the absolute. I just don't think it's possible. And I think that the more hierarchical and convoluted you create that structure to be the less creative the people themselves are likely to be. And I think that the reason that that is, I I mean, I think it's very, the function of Catholicism or of Christianity in general is not meant to just be to kind of absolve you of absolute responsibility and then you can do what you will. And I know you don't really do it that way, Mm -hmm. but I think it's, it's not possible to separate the those two those two things so so like if if there were a version of a catholicism that you could just sort of subscribe to and say like the absolute is x now i'm going to go do whatever i want <laughs> mm-hmm. i think maybe maybe that would be actually kind of interesting in some weird ways and then you could have totally separate aesthetic and communal practices that, you know that, that that were separate but i i feel like there would be a baseline hollowness of that i i don't know if people would really subscribe to that yeah you could be right. Well, what do you think, Marin? We crossed the hour mark. Do you feel that we have covered sufficient ground for today and we should pick this up next week? Or was there anything on your mind that you're especially keen to, to get out onto the table? Or how are you feeling? I feel good. I think I'll just say I, I am very interested in how to create a – I think we're both interested in how to create a Christianity that – bring some lived vitality to the people who are Christian and encourages them to be creative and to become the best versions of themselves. And, and at some level there, there may be a will to power angle and that I'm not sure. I'm, I'm super curious to just continue to, to continue to poke at what Christianity calls for from us. And I do definitely think that this, this division, the Protestant versus Catholic division is an interesting one. I'm, I'm, I really like it as a point of Mm -hmm. contention. Heck yeah. I completely agree. Vitalism is always what I'm after. A a, a true Christian vitalism is something (laughs) that I dream of and that I I think we lack. And, um, so I like, I like how you put that. And what about you? How are, how are you feeling? Oh, feeling good. Feeling good. I'm feeling, well, I'm looking out at my backyard, which is, I can see grass, I can see sun and uh, that's that's the first time I've seen grass in in a few days since um, people listening probably know I'm in Austin, Texas, where there was just this absolute cataclysm and kind of civilizational shutdown. It's been some some real dystopian cyberpunk out here, honestly, because it's like the 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 shelves on the grocery stores are empty. You hear like sirens blaring for like 24 seven for the past few days. Uh, it's it's been this strange, surreal kind of snow and ice storm which is bizarre in texas because it's like the something i'm realizing is like the trees and the flora and fauna are different than they are in somewhere like new jersey or new york where there's a lot of snow so it's like when when the trees here get hit with snow and ice the the trees like droop over and they like crack and fall just because there's like snow and ice on them and uh it's just it's, it's been this very surreal um kind of dystopian uh, environment for the past few days but meanwhile i'm like i've had internet the whole time so i'm like active on the internet watching the price of bitcoin go up and up and up and so it's like this it's like this real cyberpunk kind of dystopian surrealism that i've been living in for the past four days and now it's all just over I'm sunny i see the grass there's no snow there's no ice anymore just bizarre we live in end times i'm telling you the apocalypse is upon us this is we're living through it and uh, justin i need to convince you to become a protestant so then we can like enumerate our own new denomination 
<laughs> I'm see, listening see. to you, but I'm also interrupting you because I'm like, Justin, like we need to we need to take some more steps here, man. See, Marin, I the, I love this idea, and I'm uh, there's like 50 percent of me, let's say 49 percent of me, that is like so game to do that and would would love it and could probably succeed, but. If you and I did that, I'm honestly terrified of the of the consequences. I'm terrified of what would result. And that is what that is what I mean, I, I'm terrified that I would be like the next uh, Carl Lentz and I would go down this like crazy delusional. Do you think I would let you do that? I don't think I don't think so. Well, yeah, OK, maybe you're right. Maybe there's a there's a game. There's a kind of unique collective arrangement that could be engineered where you have checks and balances on the cult and the, the checks and balances prevent those types of things from happening. I think the theology point is a really valid one. It's like, what does it mean to actively reflect on religious experience and how it's showing up in the material world? I think that that's yeah. a really important question that theology yeah. is meant to, meant to answer, which is kind of beyond just seminary, right? Seminary is more like the preaching of the dogma in the, in the, in the, active sense assuming you already believe everything that that you're saying anyhow right that's an right. aside i'm just i'm gonna keep like low-key advocating for uh for the integration of these of these ideas i think all right we well we'll go. keep it going for sure we'll we'll we'll, we'll get to the bottom of it we'll figure we'll figure <laughs> yeah, out we'll figure it out we'll figure Nita it out couldn't figure it out justin and Marin certainly i mean we're well on our way heck yeah we're ubermensch <laughs> yeah ubermenching that shit for sure awesome well thank you Marin. as always this was a pleasure and for those of you out there listening thank you for listening tell tell your friends about the chat for god podcast which is super cool and i would say still very underrated the word has not fully gotten out we need time uh, justin we're working on our we're working on our theories here man that is true that's true but still tell your friends leave a review on itunes and yeah thanks for listening we'll be back next week Marin. until then take it easy nice to see ya God bless.